Welcome, all you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, remains solemnly dedicated to revealing for you how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you, as I, as I often do, thank you for your stellar work in helping to promote and popularize the show. Uh, I don't know if it's all of you, or a select few of you, uh, or a majority, I just don't know, but I do know that certainly, without doubt, a goodly number of you are helping to get the word out about the show, introducing other people to it, sending them links to the show, etc., etc. Uh, but whatever it is you're doing, it works, and that gives me a huge kick. I really appreciate that very much indeed. And um, I want to speak today, if I can, I want to teach you some ancient Jewish wisdom about cities, Okay. Now, there are a number of things, uh, but I'll start with this. I will ask you the question. Um, I'm, I'm somebody who has a relationship with God, and I know that's true for many of you, and I know we also have listeners who are not interested in a spiritual existence at all, so, so be it. But um, when do I feel closer to God? That's the question I'm asking you. A when I am on a sailboat, or any boat for that matter, sailing between breathtakingly beautiful emerald islands in the coastal waters of British Columbia, and all there are are there every now and then you get a, a pod of killer whales popping out of the surface and blowing and, and jumping, and we have dolphins leaping out of the water. And meanwhile, there's an island on the side, there's another beautiful green island ahead, and everywhere around us, beautiful, clear, uh, blue water. A, that, is that the situation in which I feel closest to God? Or do I feel closest to God when I'm in, a big, in the middle of a big, bustling city, Manhattan, Dallas, Atlanta, New York, yes, Chicago, Abu Dhabi, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, where where do you think I feel closer to God? In the midst of nature, in a beautiful forest, um, down hiking down the Grand Canyon, or when I'm in the middle of a big bustling city? What's the answer? The answer is the latter. I feel far closer to God in a big city than I do in the country. Why is that? Well, um, the Grand Canyon is certainly magnificent. There's no question about it. But we don't need people for the Grand Canyon. In other words, God's last word in creation the remarkable and unique human being, different from every other creature on the planet, touched by the finger of God. Why do I say that? Because not even beavers, and I love beavers. I mean, there's a wonderful IMAX beaver movie, which if it ever comes anywhere near you, I think you should try and see it. Um, the, no animal builds a city. 
Now, the Grand Canyon doesn't need people. As a matter of fact, give me a desert and a river, and if you don't mind waiting for about 10,000 years, maybe as long as a million, uh, I'll give you a Grand Canyon a mile deep, not a problem. Just give me a river flowing through the desert and we'll give you a canyon. Doesn't need human creativity in any way whatsoever. Uh, it is possible for a Grand Canyon to have simply evolved. Just happened, right? The uh, planetary dust formed the Earth, or there was an explosion, whatever you want. It doesn't make any difference. But um, all of a sudden, there was a, a planet, and there was a river on it, and there was a desert, and the Colorado River flowed through the desert for year after year, eon after eon, millennium after millennium, and you get a canyon. It's really not that hard. But a city? Really? They're extraordinary. Just think of what it takes to build buildings. Think what it takes in terms of the daily logistics of keeping such an agglomeration of people going. The, the food, the, I mean, where, where does it all come from? How does it all happen? And you see how tenuous it is when the, um, the, the double whammy that uh, hit America this year during the first half of 2020, a double whammy of incredibly destructive and exaggerated and, and uh, mistaken government reaction to the coronavirus, added to that the so-called peaceful, and I've done air quotes around the word peaceful, protests. Um, you know, <laughs> just recently I saw the Wall Street Journal reported that um, Joe Biden uh, said, there is no reason, I'm quoting, there's no reason for the president to send federal troops into a city where people are demanding change peacefully and respectfully. Which city is Joe Biden actually looking at? Albuquerque, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta? Where, where exactly is, is Joe Biden looking? But um, yes, yeah, so between the peaceful protests and the destructive government reaction to the coronavirus, we see how fragile life is in the cities. Remarkably fragile, frighteningly fragile. But under ordinary circumstances, and look how quickly most cities basically recovered. There was a, a short time where you couldn't get stuff, and then everything came back. You know, remarkable. You just think of what it takes for a city to function. And it really is extraordinary. It is the most amazing example of human cooperation, the building of a city. No other animal can do this. I should say not no other, but I should say no animal. So it's this remarkable thing called a city, which no other creature comes up with and which is an absolute ode to human cooperation and to human specialization, which in itself is an incredibly wonderful concept because cooperation is dependent on 
on uh, uh, specialization and vice versa. If I decide I can do everything for myself, then I don't need anyone else. And the same goes for you. But if we make this wonderful pact that I will specialize in doing one thing and you'll specialize in another, then we trade your cheese for my radishes and uh, we both eat much better than we ever did before we started specializing and cooperating. It's, it's, it's really quite amazing. And so uh, cities are these amazing places. They really are absolutely amazing places. Now, I understand that many of us have this dream of living on a remote island off the grid, and many of us have the dream of living on a small farm and letting our children run free range and having a few animals and, uh, you know, letting our five-year-old little boys learn rodeo skills by doing mutton busting, you know, riding, <laughs> riding sheep until the sheep toss them off. It's, it's, a, it's the most wonderful thing to watch. And uh, I assure you, no sheep are killed or injured in this program. And uh, there it is. I mean, cities, amazing places. And so not surprisingly, um, about 82% of the people in America and Canada, about 82, and Alaska, about 82% of people in North America live in cities. And what's more, cities are getting bigger and bigger. And the population of North America is mostly concentrated in mid-sized to large-sized cities, populations over a million. Um, in, uh, in 1950, uh, how many cities were there of more than a million people in America? Right. And, you know, don't forget, I mean, we, our population at that point was, you know, well over 150 million. So how many cities were there of more than a million? Twelve. There were 12 major, really big cities in 1950. Um, how about now? From 12 in 1950 to 2020, uh, there are now about 50 cities of more than a million people in the United States. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So you'd think, why? Like, who wants to live in such a crowd? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of you listening either are already living in such a crowd or would like to. Why? Well, let me first of all explain that it's not just in the United States. Wherever in the world you live, and I love the fact that this show now has listeners in so many different countries. And when you do write in about the show, by the way, um, please tell me where you're listening from. I, I love hearing that and putting pins in my map. Well, this is known in the United States. The wonderfulness of cities has attracted people from rural areas all around the world. And so populations in developed countries and also in under or, or pre-developed countries are all heading to the large cities. And we're seeing greater population density than ever before, because, of course, world population is bigger than ever before. And so this is across the spectrum of uh, developed economies, developing economies, and we are increasingly becoming an urbanized world, a world 
that lives in cities. Why? Well, because one of the most wonderful and exciting things is connecting with other human beings. It's why we like nightlife, right? We don't want to just hang out by ourselves. And and I think during the uh, ridiculous and exaggerated lockdowns in the United States, um, people really began to uh, to to yearn for contact with other people, and it's it's people are are so depressed about this. Um, look at the words of um, um, Daniel Henninger, who who writes beautifully. Um, he says uh, something very sad is happening. The irrepressible vitality of American cities, their whole reason for being, is disappearing, undone by pandemic lockdowns and a new culture of permanent protest. And so it's getting, if you do go downtown, it's empty, and the only people who are there are rowdy mobsters and barbaric people who, uh, who are destroying life in the city. And so um, you go downtown, almost any city, it's tense. People are anxious and angry. Much is closed, or if things are open, they're listless. There's no nightlife. You know, if you leave your house or your apartment after 9 p.m., if you're in New York, it's a ghost town inhabited by dangerous zombies. In some parts of town, you do have mobs of folks partying outside like a street fair. But uh, other places, people live in fear. And, um, and, and this is, is, is really, really horrible. Um, a, I saw an article in Crane's New York Business Magazine recently uh, described how the outdoor dining tables of restaurants in Manhattan are overrun by disturbed or half-dressed beggars whom Mayor Bill de Blasio's administration has housed in nearby hotels. One restaurant owner said, every bit of progress in this neighbor, that this neighborhood has made over the years is stepping backwards. And so um, you, you may remember, way back in the 1970s, President Gerald Ford said he was not going to help bail out Again, New York had just run out of money by out-of-control spending and liberal progressive policies. And so um, uh, there was a famous headline in New York, one of the papers, I think it was the Daily News, said, um, Ford to City, drop dead. Well, President Ford never actually said drop dead. But um, but today, I'll tell you one thing, uh, progressive elitists and governmental bureaucrats are absolutely saying to America's great cities, drop dead. Um, liberal progressives, politicians, activists, uh, just blinded by their politics to the quality of daily life in American cities, are obliterating it, pulverizing it to atoms. It's frightening and horrible. And so um, how, how, does this, how does this happen? Well, before I talk about that even, let me just say that the reason this is so miserable is because people like connection. Uh, wearing of mosques, you know, progressives who've bought into this completely, well, it's just, you know, just go ahead and wear a mask. What's the big deal, right? No, it's it's a huge deal. 
And this is something that Susan Lappin wrote about on our website in the musings. You can see it uh, right now. Um, is that when you wear a mask, an outing is no longer any fun. You know, if you used to go into a store, you're going to, you know, window shop or you actually are shopping, you know, there'd be an interchange with the uh, the shop assistant. There might even be casual interchanges with other shoppers. Sometimes it's just, you know, let's say there's a, a frustrating line. You know, you might just meet the eyes of someone else in the eye in the line and you you both sort of roll your eyes and there's a moment of fellowship and camaraderie there just through that or sometimes i mean and this has happened to me many times where i'm looking at an item somebody comes up and says by the way i've got that and i just i, I just want to tell you it's, it's it works great for me you know and yeah oh thank you that's so nice of you and you know you chat for a couple of minutes moments of human interaction they mean something. That's one of the reasons we have nightlife, right? You, In the nighttime, you want to go into a city. You want to go somewhere, sit in a restaurant where there are other people as well. You don't want to be the only person in a restaurant, even though it's counterintuitive, right? If you just think about this logically, ruling out all your life experience, and somebody says to you, would you rather go into a full restaurant or an empty restaurant? The food in both of them is equally good. You should say, I'd like the empty one. I'll get better service. But no one will say that. And it's not just because they think the food isn't as good. It's just eerie. It's just no fun being in an empty restaurant. You want to be in a bustling restaurant. Uh, you want to, if you have sidewalk cafes, cities with sidewalk cafes, hugely popular. You go and you, you sit and you have a beer or whatever it is or a coffee, whatever you want, and you just watch the passing traffic. We humans are wired for connection. And right now, the uh, at this point mid 2020 uh between the protesters the violent barbarians who are destroying america's cities by the craven supine cowardice of leadership that simply confuses legitimate protest with violent uprising they've basically made the cities lose all their advantage the whole, the whole point of being in a city was for human connection. Well, thanks a lot, but uh, you guys have taken that away. And the 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 uh, collateral advantage of cities, of course, is that they um, uh, they are places where you can make money, and that's one of the reasons people come to cities. There is more economic activity. Well. If any of you have studied any of my financial packages on our website, either the books Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money, Business Secrets from the Bible, The Financial Prosperity Collection, whatever it is, you will know that cities and the money it is possible to make in a city is God's way of incentivizing us to serve one another. That's right. That's one of the very best things about a city. It's a place where you have more opportunities to serve your fellow human beings than anywhere else. I mean, if somebody's about to open a, uh, a store and he says to you, uh, I'm going to be opening this in Death Valley, Arizona, 
Uh, and you say, why there? He says, because there won't be any competition. You know, you tell him it's not really a good idea. The number of people you're going to be able to serve is very few. And subsequently, the amount of money you'll make is, is not a whole lot, very little. So you don't want to do that. You want to be in a city. And the more competition there is in the city, the better there is. In fact, you should open your store exactly in the neighborhood where there are a whole lot of other stores selling the same kind of thing. Counterintuitive? No, not at all if you understand that this is all about serving God's other children. And so all of this is doable in the city in a, in a, in a wonderful and spectacular way. And uh, now I have to tell you something really important. This is a timeless truth and a permanent principle of ancient Jewish wisdom. And those of you who've been listening for a while and have been studying ancient Jewish wisdom, those of you who are happy warriors of long duration, you will already know this principle. But the principle is what I call the sine wave principle. And that is, as high as something can go in a positive direction, that's how far it can also go in a negative direction. And so uh, fire is incredibly useful and valuable. Uh, it's at the heart of understanding of energy and cooking and, and creating and manufacturing. Fire is critically important. But if a fire goes out of control and whips through a neighborhood and, and burns, the destruction is horrible. Uh, nuclear power, fantastically useful. Uh, ultimately, it will free mankind from drudgery when mankind has reached the moral level to warrant being freed from drudgery and being able to use our time effectively. But um, that'll come from nuclear energy. Nuclear energy even now can produce so much electricity, so much better than any other way that we have at the moment. I know some of you probably do not agree with that, but uh, you are wrong. Um, in the same way that uh, coal is a much better energy source than wood, and then oil is a much better energy source than uh, oil than than coal. Uh, ultimately, nuclear power is a far better energy source than oil is. But obviously, if anything were to go wrong, or if it, if it was used uh, for a bomb, right? The destruction, the destructive power is immense, unimaginable what can go wrong. The same thing is with the city. Uh, life in the rural area, look, it's very pleasant and it's very lovely. And I assure you, I have dreamed and fantasized about living on a quiet island somewhere or uh, living on a boat. I've, I've dreamed and fantasized about all of that. But the truth is that I know that after the initial pleasure of it wears off, and it'll wear off very quickly, I will yearn for human contact that's that's how we're made we really do need human contact and if we don't get it we deteriorate that's right absolute disconnect from other people isolation from other people drives us crazy really solitary confinement is a punishment it's a torture it's a thoroughly inhumane torture. It's not a. It's not a. Uh, it's not a reward 
for busy people. Oh, good, you get to go into solitary confinement. No, nobody wants to go into solitary confinement. Nobody wants to go on vacation to a deserted city, right? Even if it means you'll be able to get parking space. We like being among crowds, even though we might complain, oh, the, it's maddening, I can't take the crowds. Yes, you can, because the truth is you'd hate it the other way. It's wonderful to be with other people. But remember, fire and nuclear power, that is true as long as everyone is good. As long as everybody is doing what they should do and refraining from doing what they shouldn't, as long as there are values in place, there's nowhere better than a big city. But, my dear friends, when things deteriorate and when human beings lose their values, well, in that case, a city is the very worst place to be because you're in, you can't defend yourself. It's it, for, for, for many, many reasons, and, uh, and maybe I'll come back to that, maybe not. But you should be able to see for yourself that if things go to hell in a handbasket, the city is really not where you want to be. And most of the upset, most of the fear among Americans today are among urban Americans. It's people living in cities and looking out their windows at rampaging crowds and people feeling they have to arm themselves against the danger of barbaric mobs. Yeah, but in the country, if you're living on a small holding for the most part or a small town, you're happy, right? You're, you're not immune to the economic damage. But at the same time, you know, you, you may, maybe you grow vegetables, maybe you got a couple of animals. Uh, you're okay. You're sort of self, you're, you're self-sufficient in, in some ways. Yes, you do want to get to the Costco and the Walmart in, in the nearby town every now and then. But if things are going great, if things are well, if civilization is thriving, of course you want to be in a city. There's nowhere better. But when the barbarians take over, which is like saying when liberal progressives take over, um, the city is the worst place. You, you need to get out of the city. It's not good. So we've got to understand that uh, the, the, the level of a city, you know, the city is nuclear energy to a wood fire. It's so amazing, the potential for good and for bad. Yes, that's true. But the, the sheer potential of nuclear energy is huge. And the sheer potential of a city is huge. And that's one of the reasons that cities are viewed in ancient Jewish wisdom. Cities are more holy than urban areas. It's not an accident that the temple, right, God's first temple, that Solomon, King Solomon, uh, built, it wasn't built in a beautiful forest, or you know, how about in, in a desert? You know, why wasn't it built in the desert where God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai? That would be a good place to build a temple. No, it wouldn't. A temple has to be in the holiest place, not a forest, not a canyon, not a mountain, not a desert, a city, Right? And so the temple was built in what was one of the main cities of the day, Jerusalem. 
it truly was a city of destiny back then. Today it also is. So not only is it an incredible feat to keep cities functioning, like how does it happen? And every time central planners, either socialists in America or in the Soviet Union days, every time they try to central plan cities and make things work that way, there was famine, there was hunger, nothing worked. But as long as you leave people in freedom, good people, people with civilized values, you leave them in freedom and the city functions. There's enough bread in the shops every morning. There's enough milk. There's coffee. There's everything you can possibly want or need, all found in the city in the right amounts. It's a miracle of human interaction. Um, Weaver birds may build fascinating nests, but they don't build cities. As I said, beavers are beautiful engineers and builders, but they don't build cities. Bees do not build cities. Only human beings build cities. And here's the funny thing. It's not only that cities provide enormous economic opportunity, but there's also social resilience. Cities survive. Have you ever thought about this? States and empires come and go. But when was the last time a city was lost to history? Right? The Roman Empire? You know, the Roman Empire is long gone. Rome is still there. The British Empire, gone. London is there. The Ottoman Empire, on the ash heap of history. But Istanbul is there. The Spanish Empire, it's a joke. I mean, who? some people say, what are you talking about? Spanish Empire? What is that? South Central Los Angeles? It's ridiculous. Uh, what, what? No, there really was a great Spanish Empire. That's right, there really was. And uh, its capital city was Barcelona. And in South America, the empire, the Spanish Empire spread all the way to South America, Mexico City. Well, the Spanish Empire is gone, but Barcelona's there, Mexico City's there, the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire's gone, finished. Moscow, still there. St. Petersburg, it was, the city started in the 1700s. That's a long time ago, right? But it got renamed Leningrad, maybe. But, uh, and I think it's now back to St. Petersburg. City's still there. Uh, Volgograd started in, before, before 1600, actually. And yes, it did get renamed Stalingrad. And I, I hope it's been renamed Volgograd again. I'm not sure. But city's been around for over 400 years. Do you know what's happened in that part of, of Russia over the last 400 years? Doesn't matter. The city is there, not the empire, not the government, not the uh, not the state. That all comes and goes. Um, and and best of all, look at Israel. Right, Israel existed as a place with Jerusalem as capital until 586 BC, and then the Babylonians destroyed it and uh, and d left nothing. Um, and then Jews came back. And there they were until 70 uh, AD. And then the Romans scattered them throughout Europe and throughout North Africa. And um, just, you know, there, there wasn't a Jew to be seen in Israel. 
Jerusalem, still there. Jerusalem hasn't changed. Still, well, it has changed, but the city is still the city. Uh, the British were there. The Turks were there. The Arabs were there. Jerusalem exists. Jericho still exists. Jaffa, the city of Jaffa has been there since the days of Jonah the prophet, right? Well, Jaffa is still there. You can go to Jaffa and enjoy a coffee looking out over a 2,000-year-old harbor. <laughs> it's amazing, right? So um, God likes cities. I, I, I'm going to use that formulation uh, knowing understandably that not everyone relates to it, but even if you don't relate to it, you understand what I mean by that. Uh, God likes cities. One reason is because there is more opportunity to serve his other children, and thereby doing that, you're serving him. Now, here's the part where it gets kind of interesting. I'm going to tell you something that is contrary to what academia preaches, and um, Look, I don't, I don't worship at the altar of academia. Uh, I, I'm instantly suspicious when I hear words like uh, uh, Professor so-and-so says. I'm instantly suspicious when I hear the words experts say. I'm instantly suspicious when I hear words like studies reveal. Uh, these things worry me. Uh, I believe that uh, outside the fields of science and technology and engineering and mathematics, outside the areas of biology and chemistry, um, what is coming out of American universities is more harmful than helpful, uh, more lies than truth, more falseness than authenticity. And, um, and so I, I do realize that... Uh, Every now and then I say something and then large, like 20, 30 people write in. I get 20, 30 letters, easy. Uh, well, are you aware that um, uh, this is not what you said isn't the uh, accepted information on this? And then they quote various universities and various studies that uh, belie what I'm saying. Okay, so in the present circumstance, the way that things are now, uh, I would say that even if you aren't willing to exercise your own judgment, which is what I encourage all the time, I say, stop buying into experts. That's a disease. It's called the disease of expertitis. Uh, another disease is credentialism. Don't catch credentialism. Credentialism says that if somebody is not university credentialed, he's valueless. And uh, it so happens that uh, one of the finest and most reliable historians in America at the moment is not a university credentialed person. Uh, he's David Barton of Wall Builders. Um, the, Bill Federer is a great historian. Uh, there are there are other people, and it's worthwhile listening to them, even though, or maybe especially today, they, that they are not academically credentialed. So I say all this because um, academic credentialism takes certain directions. So, for instance, they rely heavily on archaeological information. Well, 
what I like about archaeology, I, I, I'm almost tempted to become an archaeologist, is because you can say whatever you like and nobody can ever prove you wrong. Not, in, not until years after you've gone anyways. Um, that's a nice thing to be. Much harder to be a business professional where you have to make a call, right? Uh, what happened to the greatest airline in the history of the world, Pan American? For a lot of reasons, right? Pan Am, the greatest airline. Remember their headquarter building they owned on Park Avenue, right? Like the only building in, in New York, right in the middle of an intersection. Amazing. Uh, greatest airline went. Why? Bad decisions. Now, there were external factors as well. There, was, uh, there were a lot of things happening. Um, and they certainly had uh, bad luck happening. But um, they had spent so much money and uh, had left so little in the way of reserves that they were not able to live out, see through the bad times. It's a fascinating story, by the way, this story of Pan American and Juan Tripp, the incredible visionary who built Pan Am Airlines. It really is a wonderful story. Um, but it does show you that if you're a business leader and you make a mistake, you're going to get caught out. If you are a physicist or a mathematician and you make a, uh, a bad call, well, yes, you're going to be caught if you come up with a mathematical theory or you come up with a theory in chemistry or biology, if it's wrong, you'll be caught out eventually because the science will advance and show that your theory or your concept or your idea was wrong. It didn't work. But archaeology, not like that. You can say whatever you like, <laughs> and dead people are not going to come back to life to tell you that uh, what you are excavating, professor of archaeology, and have informed the world that you are excavating an ancient temple, the, uh, the ancient people are not going to come back and tell you, you're an idiot. It was a public toilet is what it was. You know, you can say whatever you like and lay out the stones the way you want them to be and draw in the missing lines, whatever you want. But um, archaeology, very academic field, and it's, it's one that I don't personally give a great deal of credence to. It doesn't impact my thinking in any way whatsoever. But um, I, I'm going to tell you something which the archaeological departments of universities dispute, and, um, and I, I don't think it's, it's, it's at all relevant because I'm going to appeal to your wisdom, to your experience, to your eyes, and your intelligence. And I'm going to say, listen, don't worry about what the, the ivory towers of academia say. Just use your own sense. Look at the evidence and see what you think. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about the fact that in most universities, sociology and anthropology and archaeology departments, they will tell you that cities followed on agriculture. In other words, when there was an agricultural uh, rich area, uh, farmers came and they uh, farmed and they produced a lot of food and there was a surplus of food, so that made other people come. And then they set up a place where they'd have a market every Monday and Thursday and people would come and exchange. And then some people decided to build huts around the market and stay there. And that's how a city emerged. 
Now, I will admit to you that the way I've presented it, it sounds fairly plausible. Right? If you just take that at face value, yeah, that makes sense. How, how else would cities have come about? And uh, you might well say, yeah, all right, yeah, that, that's it. So what am I really saying? I'm really saying is that that's not how it happened. The way great cities emerge is that the cities emerge first, and then the agriculture develops all around it very, very beautifully. So how do we see this? Well, in a number of ways. Uh, Adam Smith was a great um, Scottish, I think originally, economist. He was also a theologian. And um, in the same year of American Declaration of Independence in 1776, he wrote um, the uh, study of the wealth of nations. And in it, he spoke about uh, uh, specialization. But what's also interesting is that he explains exactly the point I'm making, which is that cities give rise to agricultural abundance, not the other way around. It's not that there's a bunch of people out in the middle of nowhere farming and, oh, all the stuff's growing so beautifully, let's make a city. It doesn't work that way. It's actually the other way around. One of the ways he proves it is he shows that agricultural productivity in England was slightly behind agricultural productivity in Europe, the parts of Europe he was studying, France and Germany, a few other places. Then in 1750, approximately, the Industrial Revolution kicks off in England, and all of a sudden, cities grow, factories grow, populations are flocking to cities, factories are expanding and popping up everywhere, and all of a sudden, agriculture takes off. And from then onwards, there's no comparison. And he's able to show in place after place that when, <clears throat> when industrialization and urbanization occur, that's when agricultural innovation happens and agricultural productivity expands and abundance flows. Yeah, cities actually make everything work. Now, again, I know that this is counter-cultural and that uh, if I had a job teaching in a university and I said what I'm saying now, I would be cancelled, but I probably would have been cancelled long ago for many other things as well. But um, this goes completely against the official position. Now, you might ask, why? I mean, I always thought that universities were places of open inquiry and honest exploration where all ideas were welcome in the laboratory of experience and every university was open to any concept because it would be studied and explored and analyzed and tested and that way truth would begin to emerge. And so why would city, why would universities be so hostile, not just closed, but hostile to the idea that, uh, that cities precede everything else, that cities make countries, not countries make cities? They're wrong on this. So why do they cling to this? They cling to it because 
it fits more comfortably into the secular narrative. The secular narrative is that um, that what happened is through an incredibly lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into bookkeepers and ballerinas, plumbers and proctologists. That's what happened. And that we are nothing more than sophisticated animals. Yes, we are naked apes. That's essentially what we are. And if that is the pattern, then it's perfectly logical that cities should have emerged just by virtue of our search for food and a completely, in other words, you know, it just happened to be us, not beavers. But um, my approach to cities, and by the way, you'll be relieved to know that I'm not entirely alone on this. Uh, great thinkers, Professor Peter Taylor at Northumbria University in England is a very strong proponent of this and much more, much more knowledgeable uh, much more knowledgeable on it than I am. Uh, of course, Adam Smith, as I mentioned, and um, a wonderful woman writer called Jane Jacobs. And uh, she wrote really important books like uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Economy of Cities. Now, Jane Jacobs was also uncredentialed, and uh, she actually became fairly well-known in the field of city planning, uh, she took on the the great New York city planner and builder, Robert Moses, and she really became his worst nightmare. But Jane Jacobs, I have studied her books for years and years. I've been very, very, again, I was skeptical at the beginning because it goes so much against conventional knowledge. But uh, as is so often the case from time to time, um, the conventional knowledge, the conventional wisdom is just plain wrong on this. <clears throat> and so, yes, it is cities that make countries. It's not the other way around. Um, one could argue, as many people do, that one of the reasons that so few African countries have really become successful in the developed world is because there was very little in the way of city development over the centuries. Right? One of the oldest cities in Africa, and it's not like there's lots and lots of them, uh, one of the oldest cities in Africa was Timbuktu. Timbuktu is in present-day Mali. Timbuktu has never had more than 50,000 people in it. London had 50,000 people in it a thousand years ago. Timbuktu started with Arab traders um, for, which for Africa a very long time ago, 12th century. So Timbuktu started in the 1100s, um, and it became a big Muslim center, and, um, and it still exists as a small city. I think today it's a city of about 30,000 people. That's like a very small American town. But um, like London and Rome, to just talk about two, London and Rome have been in use continuously for more than 2,000 years, right? No 2,000-year-old cities in Africa. In fact, no cities at all that are today modern functional cities that are that old. Uh, Johannesburg and Cape Town, 
Right? Those are modern new cities. They didn't exist more than, let's see, um, Johannesburg is uh, goes back to the um, late 1800s. That's as that's when Johannesburg came. Cape Town earlier, 1600s, but um, Cairo a little earlier than that. But in terms of an entire continent, not having cities is a huge problem. Now, all along, the population of Africa has been eating, so there was plenty agriculture. So why didn't they build cities? Because that's not how it works. A culture builds the city first, and then the successful country comes after that. And if that country or that state or that empire mismanages, it vanishes off the stage of history but the city stays. That's the interesting thing. Fascinating. And again, I acknowledge not everybody, I'm not even going to say agrees with me because this is true. I, I have no doubt about it. I'm going to say not everyone knows what I'm telling you now. That's why I said I wanted to teach you ancient Jewish wisdom on cities. Well, what's ancient Jewish wisdom got to do with it? Very simple. Um, Bible. Go back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. How many people are there in the world right now? Uh, well, there's Adam and Eve and Cain and um, Abel. Well, Abel is dead already, so there's no Abel. It's Adam and Eve and Cain, plus a number of sisters that Cain had. And yes, the world came into being because Cain married his sisters. And then later on, Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, also married sisters. And um, so it went. So how many people in the world? Five, six, seven, ten? Ten people in the world. Um, chapter 4, verse 17, Cain goes ahead and um, has a baby. Now, the Bible doesn't bother telling, telling us who the wife or mother was, because pretty obvious, right? Couldn't have been anyone else. And uh, it doesn't tell us anything about their wedding or which rabbi officiated or which caterer catered or what they served or what the band played. It doesn't matter. The point is that Cain has killed a person. Cain killed Abel. First, first death in human history. And finally, as a result of of God punishing Cain with a quid pro quo, a punishment to fit the crime, um, Cain gets it. And he decides that in having taken a life, he has to bring a life back into the world. So his imperative now is to have a child. And he has a child whom he calls in Hebrew, Chanoch. In English, it's often called Enoch. But um, Enoch misses the point, which is that uh, in Hebrew, every name in the Bible has a meaning. It's not just a name. And so Hanoch, Cain's son's name, means educated. Essentially, Cain names this child, I've been educated, meaning he gets it. He's essentially telling God, thank you. I understand. I now know what I did wrong. This child is my attempt to try and make good. I deprive the world of a person. I'm bringing a new person into the world. And the conclusion of that very verse is baffling. The conclusion of that verse is, and Cain built a city and named it 
after his son, Hanoch. A city? <laughs> what, for eight or nine people on the planet you need a city? And ancient Jewish wisdom answers that question by saying, Yes! If you have any intention of building a civilization, if you have any intention of something durable, if you have any intention of your children being able to enjoy more than you have and pass on to their children, yes, you need a city. That'll make everything else work. So he builds a city. Uh, there are numerous examples. I'm just going to give you two more, if you don't mind. Uh, back in towards the end of the book of Numbers, uh, what happens is children of Israel, after 40 years in the desert, are entering the land of Israel. They're entering from the east. So they're going to march towards the River Jordan. They're going to cross the Jordan and attack the city of Jericho on the other side of the Jordan. Before they can cross the Jordan, two tribes, Ruvain and Gad, um, uh, approach Moses and petition him, and they say, we really like it on this side of the Jordan. How about we go over and help our brethren fight the wars of liberation on the other side? But meanwhile, how would it be if we leave our family and our livestock here on this side? Let us just build uh, pens for our livestock and cities for our families, and then we'll come along and fight the battles. And um, in eight verses later, Moses confirms the arrangement and says, yeah, sure, tell you what, do as you say, build cities for your families, build pens for your livestock, and then let's continue over the Jordan and uh, conquer the land. Cities for their families? Cities, really? How about camps? How about settlements? How about put up some tents? Right? After all, it's not going to be that long. They'll be back. But they've got to be cities? Sure. Obviously, if you understand the role of a city, the city makes everything else work. The city makes everything else happen. And so, sure enough, that's exactly right. That's what happens. And then a little further in the book of Numbers, three chapters later, book of Numbers, chapter 35, verse 7. How many cities for the tribe of the Levites are going to be special cities just for Levites? 48 cities for the Levites. Come on, there's not that many Levites. I mean, even if, even if you'd have only 10,000 people in a city, which isn't a city, 10,000 people is a village in America. So 48 cities? Yeah, because the plan is to build an entire Levite culture where the Levites are going to have a very specific role. And for them to have durability and, in, and, uh, and, and sustainability, well, they need to have cities, of course. The more, the better. Even if they're small now, to uh, take the line from the old baseball movie, if you build it, they will come. That's exactly right. And so I think it's, it's really important. Important also remember... Um, for those of you who are interested in World War II, you will recall that in spring 1940, with the British Expeditionary Army plucked off the field of the beaches of Dunkirk, without their weapons, without their vehicles, without their everything, uh, as Churchill rightly said, this was a retreat. It was fantastic. We saved 300,000 men, 
but uh, wars are not won by retreats. And uh, the, everyone believed that Hitler was going to invade uh, England very soon. Hitler himself knew that that had to happen because he couldn't get on with the war. His dream was to conquer Russia. He wanted what he called Lebensraum, room. And he always knew that he wanted the breadbasket of Russia for Germany. But he also feared a two-front war. And so he certainly didn't want to violate the von Ribbentrop peace treaty he had with Russia by attacking them while England was still alive on the West. That would be his worst nightmare. So he had to invade. In order to invade, uh, he needed the uh, defense. Uh, the R he needed the RAF and the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force and the Navy to um, um, be out of, out of, out of commission. And Hermann Goering, the head of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, promised him <clears throat> that it would only take a few weeks and he will have destroyed England's capacity to resist and the invasion can get underway. And so obviously, uh, Goering bombed, the Luftwaffe bombed British air bases, they bombed naval bases, but um, they didn't bomb the area where the German army had planned to invade. There's not a lot of choice, you know, in the same way that the invasion in 1944, the Allied invasion of Europe, um, landed on the beaches of Normandy. There are not a lot of options. It has to do with the geography, has to do with the width of the English Channel, has to do with weather. Uh, there are not a lot of places. And so similarly, the uh, invasion of England in 1066 by the Normans came to pretty much the same spot that the German army planned to invade in 1940 and uh, and it was and again in the other direction uh, the beaches of Normandy was exactly where the Norman invasion started from in 1066 so the geography of the area is pretty straightforward and 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 there's not a lot of options and so uh, <clears throat> what uh, you would have expected is Germany would have used its bomb power mostly on the beaches, on the beach defenses, on the, the first mile or two inland of where the invasion would take place. They didn't. The bombing was on London, the capital city, and on a number of other cities, but mostly London. Why? Because if you want to destroy an empire, you have to destroy its cities, not its beaches. You might have thought, well, surely we should bomb the farms so that we'll starve them. We'll destroy their capacity to grow food. No, nobody bombs farms. When the Royal Air Force bombed Germany, they didn't bomb the fields. They bombed Berlin. They bombed Cologne. They bombed uh, Dresden. They bombed the cities. That's what you do, because cities make countries. It's not countries that make cities. In the reverse direction, um, Israel, again, starts off with all these cities. City of Jerusalem, 48 other cities, all, all laid out, because if you want a country, you've got to have cities. And continents, as I said, like Africa, for instance, that for whatever reason never, ever built cities— never actually ended up with countries. Never worked. And so it is that, uh, in again, back to the Bible, the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah speaks about the um, collapse of Jerusalem. 
the destruction of Israel, uh, carrying off of all the Hebrews and the Israelites into slavery. And how does the book begin? With the destruction of Jerusalem. It doesn't talk about the destruction of the farms and the forests. It doesn't speak about the orchard. No, it's all over when the city is gone. It's mysterious. It's not altogether intuitive, but that's really how it works. And so this is all the good part of cities. The bad part of cities is, as I said, when cities are not going well, when things are not happening, where the leadership has the wrong values or no values at all, well, then that changes everything, and cities are horrible places to be. And so right now, first part of 2020, as of actually June 2020, uh, in Chicago, murders up 34%. Look, that is a depressing statistic. And that makes people feel, this isn't for me. And so the exodus from cities during 2020 has been extraordinary. As I was telling you when we started, there's been a mass urbanization movement right around the world. People are moving from rural areas into cities. They are, but not right now. Right now, at the time of this recording, which is towards the end of July 2020, Populations are abandoning the cities in huge numbers because it's an atmosphere of total chaos. 34% up murders from this time last year in Chicago. Shootings up 42%. The only reason the murders aren't up 42% is because of the brilliance of emergency medical uh, treatment today. Um Murders in Dallas, up 30%, 10-year high. Violent crime, meaning robberies and rapes in, in Dallas, rising to unprecedented heights. Cleveland's homicide rate, 55% over last year. Denver, in Denver, violent crime in Denver, 21% up. In New York, the figures are much, much worse. Right? That's what's happening. And um, people, understandably, are leaving. People are leaving Los Angeles. Seattle, what a mess Seattle has become, right? Used to be a lovely city to live in. But once progressives and liberalism takes over, and they are simply, progressivism is really just the intellectualization of barbarism. Really. That's, shall I say that one more time? Progressivism or liberalism is nothing other than the intellectualization of barbarism. And that's why it is that while violent barbar barbaric mobs were rampaging through the streets of so many cities in America, when you listen to the mayors, mostly Democratic, when you listen to the mayors and you listen to the leadership and you listen to the academicians on the university campuses, well, this is all part of America's glorious tradition of legitimate political protest. Really? No, not really. But that's what they were saying. Conservative speakers assaulted on campuses all around America for years already. And... Uh, leadership on America's university campuses, yes, 
we can't do anything to limit free speech, nothing but cowardice and the intellectualization of barbarism. It's the intellectual legitimization of barbarism. It's coming up with a pseudo-intellectual argument to validate inactivity, passivity, inertia, and ultimately the deterioration of society. Just the winding down of the entropy, the the destruction of it all. Look, um, socialism is nothing other than an evil intellectual doctrine legitimizing some people living off the sweat of other people's brows. That's right. From a moral perspective, nobody else has the right to anything I produce, create, buy, acquire, or own. Nobody has rights to my money. America set up a system where it was supposed to be government by the people, government of the people, for the people. When it's of the people and we all agree to be taxed a certain amount for the public good, that's one thing. But when taxation is imposed, and it is not what the people are really asking for, and people are seduced into voting for the government that taxes most because they are lied to and they are docile enough to believe the lies that, oh, they will be the beneficiaries. Only You won't be taxed high. You'll be a recipient. We're only taxing those evil rich people. So you can get all the goodies for free that you want. This is the great giveaway. This isn't about freedom. It's about free stuff. And uh, that's exactly what the ideologies of progressivism or liberalism or socialism is all the same thing. All evil intellectual justifications for taking other people's possessions. That's what it is. I make no mistake. Nobody has a right to my money. Wait a sec. What about charity? That's an obligation, not a right. I have an obligation to give away at least 10% of my money. That's right. Does that mean you have the right to knock on my door and say, I'm here for my money? No. I get to choose who to give it to. All that's established is that I work for a just and loving God who lets me work on a 90% commission. It's amazing. Thank you, God. I love that. I'm allowed to keep 90% of everything I make. (laughs) That's fabulous. And 10% or more, if you wish, um, has to go to people who have less than me. But that doesn't mean you have a right to my money. Not at all. Nobody has a right to your money. Nobody. It doesn't exist. Excepting that socialism makes it exist. And socialism validates envy. And socialism justifies other people saying, you are obliged, as President Obama went, you didn't make that, right? You didn't do that. Yeah, you have no right. You think you made it? Yes. If I start a business and it's honest and open and transparent and I manage to uh, succeed and make a few dollars, nobody else has a right to that. It's mine. That's right. 
That's a fundamental, basic principle of morality. It really is. And it's really important to get that clear. Because if you don't have that clear, you're going to fall into the trap of what um, ethics professor Peter Singer at Princeton, I think, calls the pond dilemma. In, in a nutshell, what he says is that if you're driving or walking down the road and you're in your fancy Armani suit and your beautiful, um, I don't know the make of a fancy Italian shoemaker, but uh, you see a child falling into a, a pond or a lake and is drowning, right? What you'll do what any decent person would do, you jump in the water. And you don't think twice about your shoes or your uh, suit. Maybe you'll kick your shoes off. But maybe you won't. Maybe you just want to get in there to save the kid. Now, you know, I don't know how much that suit costs, but maybe it costs $1,000 or $2,000 maybe. And your shoes may have cost $600. Who knows? And so you were clearly willing to spend, say, more than $2,000 to save the life of that child. Well, says Peter Singer, guess what? In Africa, there are children dying all the time because they don't have enough money. By the way, we'll leave for a moment the truth of all of that, but leave that aside. But just his argument is, if you were willing to spend $2,000 to save the life of a child who drowned in front of you, why wouldn't you be willing to spend $2,000 to save a child in Africa? And um, Peter Singer suggests the United Nations might be a very good organization to collect up all your money to save the children in Africa. I disagree with him. But listen to just the logic of the argument, right? So far, that sounds good, right? Either you were right to save the child or you weren't. If you were, then surely you're right to also save children in Africa, which means that you must pay lots and lots and lots of slices of $2,000. You don't need to drive a late model car. You can use the bus. You don't need a single family house. You can live in an apartment. And all your extra money should go to saving lives in Africa. Now, that sounds moral, doesn't it? And you say to yourself, well, you know what? I'm, I wish I was as moral as that, but I'm not willing to do it. Well, I don't say that. I say that's profoundly immoral. That's not the moral system the creator of the universe set up for human morality. Not at all. The system he set up was exactly as I said. What you earn or create or buy is yours and nobody else, not even Africans, have any right, and not even professors of ethics in Princeton University, none of them have any right whatsoever to your stuff, your money, your possessions. They don't. You have an obligation to provide a limited amount, right? I said 10% is a minimum, but there are also maximum figures. I'm not going to go into it now in detail because most of us aren't pushing the max. But it certainly does not require you to move out of your house into a small apartment and get rid of your car and travel on public transport in order to send all your money to save lives in a, on another continent. Not called for, not moral, not something you should say, oh, I wish I had the morality to do that. I guess I don't. No, that isn't moral. And I've discussed at other times, and I will again, uh, some of my material, my written material, explains why uh, God didn't choose that avenue, right? But again, you could just think about it, right? If there's no limit, if every time there's someone in need, I have to give of mine till I am almost in need, 
then what incentive would there ever be for anybody to serve anyone else to create any wealth? It wouldn't happen. So for that and many other reasons, you would be able to figure out for yourself, I'm sure, why that is not God's model of morality. And, um, but socialism, it is to justify other people having rights to your stuff. And um, so, uh, cities, yeah, back to cities. Uh, people are moving out, out of LA, out of Seattle, out of San Francisco. They're heading to Montana. They're heading into the country in Nevada. Uh, real estate sales in Montana, I, I checked up, are kind of interesting. 10% higher than at this time last year. Uh, rural Idaho property prices zooming upwards. So many people just wanting to get out of the cities. Uh, Upstate New York, outside of the city of New York, property prices spiking like crazy. Um, Oregon, Maine, uh, rural areas in Colorado, all seeing huge upticks in property sales. Vermont, right? A huge renaissance in real estate. Um, people are buying houses without even seeing them. They're not even going there to look because people want out of the cities. Now, it's going to pass and cities are going to come back because cities don't go away. They don't. They make it. Um, and people tend to panic and they tend to want to run. Uh, and so I'm not recommending that people do that at all. I think everyone should own real estate. And I think uh, it's fine if you own some real estate in your city, maybe income-producing real estate, uh, and if you own some vacation real estate in a rural area, that worst-case scenario, you know, might be a place you could uh, bug out to if you absolutely had to. Yeah, all, all of that's great, but I don't think anybody should be thinking of moving out of the cities. But I do understand the huge deterioration in urban life. All the advantages that made us go to the city in the first place have been eroded by progressive leadership. That's what's happened. So, um, um, you know, cities, yeah, even the economic advantage of cities being badly eroded, right? Why is it that we do better making money in a huge conglomeration of people rather than in a quiet small town with very few people? Because it is economically efficient to serve one another instead of trying to serve ourselves. You try and do everything for yourself, you'll be a poverty-stricken subsistence peasant. But if you learn to trade, <laughs> then you're going to do great. And that's the basis of a city. Think about, let me, let, me, let me play a game now. Let's think of cities through the alphabet, okay? Quickly, we're not going to take a lot of time. You want to work with me on this city that starts with A, Accra in Ghana. Uh, B, Buenos Aires in Argentina. Uh, C, come on, come on. You've you got to be ahead of me on this. Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, D, City D, Dublin. E, Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, F, Frankfurt, Germany. G, Geneva. Uh, H, Hamburg, Germany. I, Istanbul, J, Jerusalem, uh, K, Kiev, L, London, easy, right? M, oh, there's plenty M's. Let's go with Montreal, N, New York, Oslo, Paris, Q. I got a Q. 
I'll give you three seconds for a cue. Quebec City. R, Rome. S, Stockholm. T, Tokyo. U. Um, U, sorry. I, I don't have a U. V, Vancouver, Canada. Uh, w, Washington, D.C. W, X. Um, there's probably an X city somewhere in China. I'm sorry, I, I haven't got it. Y, Yokohama, Japan. Z, Zanzibar, East Africa. Um, you know what's interesting? With one exception, every city I mentioned there is on the water. Jerusalem is an exception, and uh, I've written about that. You'll see it on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Do a search for Jerusalem. You'll find out why Jerusalem is one of the very few rare important cities in the world that was not built on water. Why, why did all these cities grow on water? If agriculture was, in fact, the basis of cities, which it is not, but if it was, if it was the basis of cities, well, then you'd have expected the last place to have a city is on the water. Because think about it. A coastal town has only 180 degrees of land around it for agriculture, whereas an inland city has 360 degrees. All the way around it can be farmland. And so if agriculture produced cities, then cities should be mostly inland. But yet it's hard to think of an important city, a long-standing city, city that's been around for years, hard to find one that isn't on the water. You know why? Because of trade. Water, before railroads and before trucking, water was the main form of trade. Even to this day, cities like Long Beach, California, Norfolk, Virginia, many, many cities around the country in the United States, many cities elsewhere, um, the, the port is the main economic driver of the city because the majority of goods still move around the world, whether it's oil or whether it's natural gas, whether it's furniture or coal or iron ore or whatever it is, travels by water. And so what we find is that cities are the result of trade, not the results of agriculture. And it's only after the trade has established the city that the city's presence produces all kinds of breakthroughs and advances and outbursts of explosive productivity in the agricultural areas. Ah, yes, that's how it works. And so um, it's, it's really, I, I think it's, it's really, really valuable to understand that uh, although more than 30,000 residents have left New York um, since the beginning of 2020, uh, the population is the lowest it's been in a century. The fact is that um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is going to come back. Um, Baltimore, also tremendous population drain. Yeah, because it's become unlivable in the city. That's right. Um, people throughout California, as I said, they've moved out uh, of L.A. and San Francisco uh, to small towns in nearby deserts and mountain areas. This is happening all over the place. Not permanent, but it is happening. And so uh, what we have to understand is that um, the city is hugely important. Cities are holy places. 
and watching their destruction now at the forces of socialism is tragic. But they will come back because cities are the basis of everything. Remember that before there were nations even, there were city-states. The city itself, that's why they used to build city walls, because the city had to take on the role of defense as well, because the states became weak and dissolute, but cities remained vibrant because they were based on human exchange. They were based on commerce. So Rome was a city-state. Athens was a city-state. Carthage in North Africa was a city-state. Uh, there were Italian city-states during the Renaissance. Um, more recently, Hong Kong was a city-state. Macau was a city-state. Dubai and Abu Dhabi are city-states. And, and this is an old story. I mean, um, there was a wonderful conglomeration, a wonderful association of cities called the Hanseatic League. And the Hanseatic League was started in about uh, 1160. Very, very interesting. What happened was towns like Lübeck and uh, Danzig and Hamburg and Cologne, all cities on the water in Germany, realized that if they could build trading alliances among themselves so that goods could travel freely without customs and taxes between those harbors, they would build huge economic uh, and subsequent military power. Well, they were exactly right. Han By the way, Hansa mean, in German means a gathering, a collection means connecting and getting together. So Hanseatic League was the League of Cities that uh, formed this association. Lufthansa, the German national airline, is exactly the same thing. Luft means air, so air connections, right? Joining cities that's what the word Hansa means, through the air. So that's what Lufthansa means. But the Hanseatic League lasted for about 500 years. And Tallinn, if you heard of the city of Tallinn, which I believe is beautiful in Estonia, I'd love to see it. A city of Dortmund, Riga in Latvia, uh, Bremen in Germany, Stockholm in Sweden was part of the Hanseatic League. And so um, for that period of about 500 years in Europe, um, civilization was being sustained amidst all kind of barbarism going on in the uh, in the states and countries and rural areas. Meanwhile, those cities were thriving, doing very well indeed. Yeah, it is all about cities, and um, and you realize that you know again. Uh, I, I I'm hoping that I have given you enough to think about to at least not be gullible enough to buy into academia's uh, primitive idea that cities are the result of agriculture. Just think about it. What produces more taxation? I mean, I don't even have to go back to look at the incredible numbers in Europe during the period, the 500 years of the Hanseatic League, but even today, it's pretty obvious, right? Obviously, Countries need cities. Cities don't need countries. Cities can just become city-states. Countries need cities because cities produce tax revenue. And um, just think about what cities tax. Toll roads, business licenses, construction permits, development permits. By the way, three-quarters of these shouldn't exist. Again, in a, in a healthy, vibrant economy based on the values of Judeo-Christian civilization, these, these taxes wouldn't exist. But just let's think about more of them, right? What else is going on? Land registration, um, uh, waste collection, 
public parking, um, funeral licensing, uh, pet licensing, um, various municipal services, uh, utilities, all taxed. Have you looked at your utilities bill lately? You looked at your cell phone bill? All of this, all huge taxation revenue. And people who live in cities put up with it because of the advantages of cities. Uh, building licenses, gardens and public parks, public health, residential, real estate, taxes, everything, roads, infrastructure, all taxed. Um, uh, and fines, by the way, traffic fines, right? Uh, that's a huge generator of money. Congestion taxes, property taxes, land transfer taxes, uh, advertising taxes, hotel occupancy taxes, uh, recycling tax. Can you believe that? We don't want to recycle in the first place, but no, got to do it and we'll tax it. Um, excise taxes of all kinds. Um, then cities also monetize uh, assets in a way that the countryside doesn't. For example, in advertising, right? Because if you're going to have 500 people driving past a billboard, um, yeah, no, not very exciting. If you're going to have 20,000 people driving past every day, well, that's a little different. So naming rights, billboards, um, municipal data gets sold, uh, parks, beaches, all of these have usage taxes or fees, um, co commercial units, markets, uh, and so on and so forth. Lots and lots and lots of different ways <clears throat> that uh, cities generate money. Uh, cities are also where world-changing ideas are generated. That doesn't happen in farm country. For the most part, world-changing clusters of idea generators happen in cities. And, um, and, and cities consequently thrive. And their resulting wealth creates a, a demand for security. And that leads to the invention of the state. First of all, as I said, city-states, and after that, empires and uh, multi-city-states. And, and again, little by little, this is, this is how cities become city-states. And then uh, after they build walls, states themselves emerge. This is what's happened throughout history. So building cities is hugely important, and it's why we see it showing up at the beginning of the Bible, long before there are enough people to even warrant it. Um, and you have a chance, as I said earlier, to serve people so much more in a city than elsewhere because there are more people to serve. And it's just more efficient. And in other words, you serve another person. You just serve yourself. That's, in a way, riding off everyone else. You become a subsistence peasant. You're working 24-7. If you're not growing stuff, you're trying to make clothing. If you're not trying to make clothing, you're trying to make food. If you're not trying to make food, you're trying to build your house or fix your house, fix your roof. There's just no stopping. But the more we specialize and the more we cooperate and the more we collaborate, the more free time we have and the more uh, successful uh, our creation of wealth, the better off we live. And morally speaking, this, this works that way. I've never forgotten when uh, um, I arrived for a, uh, a lecture late in Bible school. And me and another guy, another guy and I, I should say, arrived a little late. The class had just started. We were a bit embarrassed. We, we dashed in and we stood there blinking and looking around because there were no empty chairs. So um, the uh, teacher said, you know, called out to us and said, uh, you know, there's chairs in the next lecture room next door. Go and get yourselves chairs. And 
we each went next door, picked up a chair, brought it in, found a place for it, and sat down, and sort of embarrassed to have interrupted the lecture. The lecturer closed his book, and he said, I want to teach you all a very important lesson. He said, did you notice what happened? He said, Lappin and Goldberg went to get chairs, and Lappin carried in a chair and sat on it, and Goldberg carried in a chair and sat on it, and the, our, our teacher said, I never want to see that happen again. He said, that is truly disgusting. These two men turned themselves into nothing but porters, and they could have been great human beings, and none of us knew what he was getting at. He said all that had happened was Lappin should have brought in his chair and put it down for Goldberg to sit on. And Goldberg should have brought in his chair and put it down and gestured for Lappin to sit on it. And that way, each man would have done a good deed to his fellow man. He would have served his fellow man. And instead, they just took care of themselves. It's an important lesson for me. And I, I got it. And that's part of why cities thrive because there's more opportunities to serve other people. It's beautiful. It's really a wonderful thing. And so uh, um, as a result of this connection, and it's important to note that every time in history where there's been a big breakthrough in bringing people together, where there's been a big breakthrough in helping people collaborate and connect and communicate, there's always been an explosion of wealth creation. Um, in the early 1800s, canals, there were a lot of canals dug and a huge expansion of wealth. It's one of the reasons New York exceeded Philadelphia as the commercial capital because of the Erie Canal. In 1850, by that time, the telegraph had crisscrossed America and the world with wires and all of a sudden, people could talk to each other and make deals with each other and find out about what one another needs. Huge explosion of wealth. 1860, the railways became expanded. Railroads began, began to be laid around the world in huge numbers. Steamship service across the Atlantic in 1880. Really important. Really, really important. Um, electricity in about 1900. Um, commercial radio broadcasting. It was a station in Detroit in 1920, actually, called WWJ. It still exists. They started broadcasting in 1920. That was the beginning of commercial radio. Huge explosion. All of a sudden, this was the most efficient way of merchants notifying customers what they had available. Um, and the, the wealth explosion continues. 1940, you know that in 1940, about half of all Americans had access to a telephone? That's a huge number. By 1940, I mean, the phone hadn't been in existence for more than a few decades, and yet half Americans had access to a phone. Um, 1950, uh, movie attendance among adults dropped by 72%. You know why? Television started broadcasting. Radio use dropped from three hours to four hours um, every night to 24 minutes. Nobody was listening to the radio anymore because people were watching TV. This was 1950s. Um, the, uh, the jet era, right, 1960, 
That was when commercial jet travel took off. The Boeing 707 had just been put into service, and uh, Pan Am, American, TWA were all using 707s. United and Delta were using Douglas DC-8s. In fact, uh, in 68, Boeing actually developed the 747 in partnership with Juan Tripp, who was the charismatic and visionary founder of Pan Am Airlines, him and Bill Allen, the president of Boeing, shook hands and made a deal. They literally said to <laughs> it's true, Bill Allen said, if you'll buy the plane, I'll build it. They were talking about the 747, which was, I mean, it was, un, it was, it was a huge, un, unimaginable project. So uh, Bill Allen, the president of Boeing, said, you buy it, I'll build it. One trip of Pan Am said, if you build it, I'll buy it. So they shook hands. And the next thing that happened is that uh, Boeing built the 747. Pan Am bought them in huge numbers and became the dominant airline of the world at the time. Um, 1980, fax machines came. Um, Personal computers. 1982, really, would be the start of when IBM built the first uh, Intel 8088-based PC. Um, the World Wide Web, 1990, web browsers, 1993, the iPhone, 2007, and so on and so forth. You find that technology all works towards creating artificial cities, if you like, real cities as well, but making it possible for human connection to go even further. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that uh, you cannot overestimate the importance of human connections. And that's why when I speak on the ancient Jewish wisdom mandate to work on our five Fs, used to be four, but I added physical fitness, uh, to, to work on our family, on our finances, on our friendships, on our faith, and our physical fitness. And it is a common faith that makes it so much easier to connect. And that's one of the reasons that it was literally under Judeo-Christian thinking that the great economic machinery of Western civilization took root. So those are the things to focus on. Family, friendships, finance, faith, and of course, physical fitness. And whilst obviously, if you are located in a big city, uh, life is not quite as good as it was six months ago. That's true. But there's still a great deal to be grateful for, isn't there? Just the fact that we are alive, the fact that we are able to walk, and the fact that we're able to see a sunrise and taste an orange, uh, there's ample reason to give thanks to God every day of the week. And the sheer act of giving thanks to anybody, but particularly to the Creator, uh, fills you with optimism and enthusiasm. It's a positive feeling. Just try it. You'll see. Right? If you feel self-conscious about it, do it privately when no one's around. You know, just, Thank you, God. I'm really grateful that I do not have to walk around with a colostomy bag attached. 
I'm so grateful that all the apertures of my body work correctly. It's so wonderful. I'm thankful for that every day, and I thank you. Thank you for the ability to taste an apple or see the sunrise or, hey, you know what? It's, it's really great when I want to go somewhere. I can jump in a car. Thank you for that as well. And hey, here's another big thank you. Thank you for giving to your creatures the intelligence and the wisdom and the vision and the drive to create something called air conditioning. Because life in certain parts of the world in summertime without air conditioning it's not that pleasant. So thank you for that as well. Giving thanks, hugely important, regardless of what else is going on. But in spite of everything that's happening, with the technology available, not just air conditioning, but Zoom and um, Ring Central and, uh, and Skype and all the other wonderful technologies that exist to make it possible to connect, use them. Use them for friendship, use them for family, and above all, use them also for finance. That's exactly what you should be doing. There may be things you could be doing, essentially creating your own artificial city. And it's much more challenging than creating artificial intelligence, also much more useful. So uh, all of that can be done if we just accept what's going on at the moment as a phase of history. It's not going to last forever. It is going to pass. We can function meanwhile, maybe not just as lovely as it all was six months ago, but it'll become lovely again. Right now, we just got to function. We got to make it and we got to be happy and grateful while we're doing all of that. If you go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, above all, you can connect with me, which brings me joy. So uh, on the rabbidaniellappin.com website, there is a, in the About Us section, there's a Contact Us tab. Go ahead, contact us. I love that. Let me know where you're listening from and uh, what's happening in your life. And uh, you can also read back issues of Susan's Musings and of Thought Tools. Ask the Rabbi. There's a lot going on. Uh, and a lot of it is very interesting, including a very mysterious question we just got about somebody who is doing something wrong. Didn't specify what, but he asked us a question nonetheless. And um, the uh, resource, I'm talking about connecting, right? I'm talking about how it's possible to, uh, to, to benefit financially from the fact that we're in a city. Well, well there's an audio program we have called Boost Your Income boost your income, spiritual strategies for financial abundance. It's a little audio program. It's only about an hour or so. It's it's not, not expensive at all. But uh, if you haven't got it, be a useful thing for you and definitely a useful thing for you to share with people in your orbit, family or friends who need a boost to be able to make the most of these troubling times. So it's called Boost Your Income. It's at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. So please head over there and connect and get hold of Boost Your Income. You can do it as a download, by the way. As soon as I finish talking and this show is over, you can actually go to rabbidaniellappin.com and literally within five minutes, you will have that audio ready to play on your uh, mobile device or on your uh, your your podcast player, whatever you use. Anyway, it's all there and easy to obtain. 
So, uh, my dear friends, all of you happy warriors. Uh, the show is a little bit longer. I hope you'll forgive me doing that, but I did want to comprehensively present ancient Jewish wisdom teachings on the city, what a city really is. Thank you for being part of the show. I very much appreciate it. I love hearing from you. And again, I thank you every time you forward it, every time you make a like-minded friend or relative aware of the show. That's good for you. It's good for me and good for them. Thanks a lot. Great being together with you. And until next week, I am your rabbi wishing you a week of good times with your faith, with your friendships, with your finance, with your family, and with your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.